We are certainly living in remarkable times. And I don't know whether the times are wonderful and change is coming, it's needed, or I don't know if times are under duress and it's awfully difficult to know how to act and be as a Christian. It seems like it's a time, I don't know if you're feeling it, but I'm feeling this sense of being sort of disoriented all the time. There's a pattern of how to live and how to be and how to visit friends and how to follow up on problems or how to communicate with people when you would just call them up and go to their house or meet them somewhere for dinner or have a coffee with them and like it's all the all the rules have changed and everything seems so dispassionate and cut off and impersonal with a Facebook post or a message or an email or a you know the closer you get his phone call like that face-to-face following when you know my friend Bill Richards was in the hospital dying how do you even go visit him you know it's a disorienting time what does it mean to be a Christian in the disorienting times when life around you seems to be crumbling or falling apart or changing at massive rate and you don't know how to do what you used to do because you now have to do something different you haven't figured out what that is Do you believe that the current sort of, let's call it, chaos in our country, do you believe it's going to diminish or grow in the next eight months? A while ago I would have said, oh, it's all going to kind of go away, it's going to fade out, but now I don't know. The whole COVID thing, as more and more people are affected and and uh, thank God less and less are dying, but more people are getting numbers, what, what is the reaction? What's happening out there and The more that the government says, we want this and we want that done, the more you see people saying, oh, we're just going to do our own thing. Recently, in Santa Cruz, there was a headline. In the San Jose Mercury News had this headline, Santa Cruz County beaches to reopen Friday after public increasingly ignores closure rules. Right? Santa Cruz County announced Thursday that it will reopen all of its beaches starting Friday. That was just this last weekend. Following a nearly two-month period where they were mostly closed to the curb the spread of coronavirus, the re- main reason for the shift, said Santa Cruz County Public Health Officer Dr. Gail Newell, was because the public was overwhelmingly ignoring the restrictions. We had hoped to continue the beach closures until after the 4th of July weekend, Newell said, but it has become impossible for law enforcement to continue to enforce that closure. In her own words, people are not willing to be governed anymore in that regard. So we want to recognize that by removing the restriction. So what we're seeing is like no matter what the rules are, people are refusing to be governed, right? And we're seeing this. Do you think that will grow? Do you think there'll be more and more of that or less and less than that over time? As COVID marches on and then retreats and then marches forward again, I think it's going to be interesting because I think more and more people in America are going to start ignoring what is being said. How about, are you prepared for when the financial meltdown occurs? And you're like, what, what, wait, what financial meltdown? Well, if you're paying attention to what's been happening, um, I think I have a slide of like the basic United States budget. And uh, you can take a look at the the slide there, the, yeah, this one here. And you can see that in any given year, on average, the United States of America raises about $3.5 trillion. That's typically what comes in. And if you look at the little pie chart here, the vast majority of it comes in payroll taxes and individual income tax. And the budget proposed or guessing for 2021, which they have to be thinking out in advance, is a $3.86 or $3.863 billion budget. or trillion, I'm sorry, trillion dollar budget. So 3.5 trillion come in on average. We spend about a trillion more than that every year. 
And you can see that the vast majority of money that the United States of America raises to pay its debts comes from payroll taxes and income tax. Well, what do you think's been happening in those two categories over the last five months? Right? You were seeing that, and what's going to be happening throughout the rest of the year? Are people spending the way they did? No. Is shopping happening? No. Are people being laid off like crazy? Yes. So the two main streams of revenue for our federal government that pays for everything are in collapse. What's going to happen in 2021 when taxes get filed and they're short more than, well, they're already planning on being short $1 trillion anyway. How much more so? And you look at what's coming. And by the way, uh, this is a normal, this would be a normal year. Uh, and this year, because of coronavirus, I think the next slide um, shows you that the United States, this is from the Washington Post just in April, the U.S. has thrown more than $6 trillion at the coronavirus. And that number could grow. We've already spent double the amount the entire nation brings in in a year. We've already spent that and doubled that. What do you think is going to be happening in 2021? What do you see coming? And I, I'm looking down the road and I say, I see a major meltdown. I see financial crisis, a major meltdown. Even within our own state, the vast majority of the money that our state raises comes from sales tax and business and occupations taxes and the payroll taxes and the labor and industries taxes that are paid on businesses. Businesses have been hurting. And they're going to wake up to reassemble again in the Washington State and Olympia and realize that they're going to be billions short of being able to cover the costs of running the government. What do you think the outcome will that be? Do you think more peace and harmony will come? Or do you think we're in for more wild times? It's interesting to look, sort of looking at everything. Um, uh, as the national election gets closer and the president gets elected this November, Whoever is the winner, whether you think it'll be Trump or it'll be Biden, do you think the, in the immediate weeks following the election, there will be peace and harmony in America? Or do you think it's going to be chaos? Do you think there's going to be marching in this street, possibly some of the things we've seen of, of violence and fires and looting? No matter who wins, do you think that might be the case? I'm looking at this election year and for the first time since, you know, I was a youngster and watching the elections in maybe the, you know, 1968 or 72. It seems like it's crazy times. And whatever the outcome is, I don't see peace coming. I see more chaos coming. Now, will America emerge out of it? We always have in the past. I think we can again. The question I kind of have is, what is a Christian supposed to be in such times? What is the church supposed to be in such times? In times of chaos, in times when the glue of society is breaking apart and things are falling down and we don't know who is who and what is what and it seems like camps are being uh, pitted against each other and uh, people are going into more of their own tribe and deciding that our tribe's the good guys, the other tribe's all the enemies. What is the church to be in this? I was reflecting on that a lot this last week because when we moved to this particular location from downtown going on six years ago now, we had an idea. There was a vision of what we were trying to accomplish. We had this big building downtown on the corner of 2nd and Division that had sat on that corner since 1905. And this corner had been owned by the church. They'd built two different prop or buildings on that site. And the building that we occupied had been built in 1950. And yet the church was dying and could not 
make a, it, couldn't, it couldn't stay afloat. We were losing, on average, $5,000 a month. And we had lost $5,000 a month for the whole five years that I was there. Well, actually, when we started, we were losing $15,000 a month. We whittled it down to only losing $5,000 a month. How did you do that, you ask? I have no idea. I have no idea how we possibly stayed afloat. But somehow we stayed alive. And as we began to sell that building and prepare to do something fresh, we really had two choices. One choice was, let's just close everything down and do nothing. Go our separate ways. Another choice was, well, if we sell this building, there'll be some money, and we will be able to take that money and reinvest in a new site, a new location to do something fresh. And at the time, we had discussed quite a bit amongst ourselves that we did not feel that Spokane needed one more church singing Hillsong worship tunes and a guy preaching out of the Bible. Right? We felt like, I think that's been done. I think that's being done pretty well in a lot of places. What could we be that's different? What is God calling us to do? And we felt, after such a long time, that there was this move towards creating a church that could be open seven days a week to people. That people could come on their terms and interact with Jesus, interact with us, and through us, meet Jesus. We felt like, is there a way to build a church where, yeah, you can do your Sunday morning worship service, but also where we could have something else going on? And so we built this house. When we began, actually, we used this mission that Jesus called to himself. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus has a mission statement. When Jesus arrived at his hometown of Nazareth after, after his ministry began, he said something about himself, and what he said clarified very much what he was about to do. And we felt like this mission statement should be, if it's Jesus' mission statement, maybe it should be ours too. And in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, it says this. It says, So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are, are oppressed. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's an interesting moment. Jesus has already done a few miracles. He's been preaching. He's been traveling around the region of Galilee. He's got a following already. But it's very early in his ministry. When he arrives at his hometown, the expected thing was, well, you're kind of this traveling rabbi now. And as the guest rabbi, we're supposed to let you teach. So he gets this scroll of Isaiah. And we don't know if it was the reading for the day or whether he specifically picked it. Um, but regardless, it says he rolls out this scroll, and of course it's not divided in chapter and verses like our modern Bibles are. It's literally just a scroll with the entire um, text of Isaiah laid out in columns. And so he run rolls this scroll to the place where Isaiah, in our Bibles, Isaiah 61 would be. And everybody knew, well, Isaiah 61 is a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy about the Messiah who would come. And then he reads this section, and it's interesting because he states what the mission ought to be. What he's coming to do. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
And because these are the things he's supposed to do, he's going to preach the gospel to the poor. He's going to heal the brokenhearted. He's going to proclaim liberty to captives. He's going to uh, proclaim the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, or the year of the Lord's favor in some translations. Uh, by the way, the next line, the very next line, which he didn't say, and the day of vengeance of our God. He skipped that one. He's like, no, that's not this trip. That'll be on his second trip, right, when he comes back. But this is the one where he, and then he sits down, he looks at everybody, their, their eyes are fixed on him to sit down, this is the moment to teach. Right, this is the moment where he says, okay, tell us what it means. And here's what he says, today, sitting in front of you, I'm that guy. This scripture is being fulfilled right in front of you right now. I'm him. I'm here to do that mission. Of course, the response is a, a little weak. They actually try to kill him, but he gets away. But when we read this and we were downtown, we said, what if, what if the mission of the church followed the mission of Jesus? What if you were a place you said, well, what are you about? Well, we wanted to be a place that was about preaching good news to the poor, right? And we realized good news to the poor can't just be Jesus loves you and died for your sins. That's great. That's great news. But when you're poor, it's like, yeah, I got other issues that are too demanding right now. So maybe when I get my life stabilized and I can get out of abject poverty, maybe we can talk about Jesus then. And there needed to be bucked up. There needed to be a way that they could be supported, where you could love them out of where they were into a healthier lifestyle, healthier situations, a better economic situation. And then along the way, they might turn and say, why are you doing this? Why are you helping me like this? And we could say, oh, well... Because my friend Jesus, my friend Jesus loved you and he told me to come and serve you. And we had this slogan we had a lot downtown, love them until they ask you why. And the moment they ask you why, you say, oh, because it's about Jesus. And so we felt, felt like, you know, what about a ministry that was to the brokenhearted? People who life has beat them up shattered them where they've lost their dreams and ambitions and desires and hopes where they're just so dismayed at what has happened in life that they they need a renewal again something fresh to happen in their heart what about a ministry where you could take broken-hearted people and you could say we, we're here to love you love you back to health giving you hope and joy again that seems to be jesus's ministry why isn't it the church's and then we said, proclaim liberty to the captives. And boy, could that go a bunch of different directions because it's people who are captive by literally in jail, maybe in prison, and it's a literal captivity thing. Or maybe it's the captivity of being sex trafficked. Or maybe it's emotional captivity. Maybe it's people who are in hostage and in bondage to the way that they were brought up and they can never seem to be set free of the rotten childhood they had. They can't break free out of that way of thinking. I mean, there were so many avenues we looked at. How do we take this what direction? Because Jesus is about releasing people who are captives and setting them free. Recovery of sight to the blind. Jesus was doing it very literally as, a, as blind people who received their sight, but I think there was something deeper going on because sometimes Jesus would talk about people who were blind who actually had the power to see. What he meant was you can't understand truth. 
He would say, you're blind. You're the blind leading the blind, he would say at one point to the, to the religious Pharisees who were there. What he meant was, you who don't see and know and understand God are trying to teach other people who God is when you can't even see him yourself. So recovery of sight to the blind, many times in Scripture, it's a metaphor for having your spiritual life awakened where you can see the truths of who God is and what God has done in history and what God's doing now and what he wants to do later. And then he says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To be a church where oppressed people groups, people who by maybe their ethnicity, maybe by their immigration status, you know, maybe by a variety of things, are people struggling in society to try to make their way and achieve what we might call the American dream. Peace, joy, happiness, raising a great family and having great kids and living in, in the in the joy of just regular American life. So what, what would it be like if the church was doing this mission? If the mission of Jesus was also the mission of the church, what would we do? And we, we said, well, the first thing we knew is, well, we're in way over our heads. But let's try something. And so we built this coffee shop church. And the coffee shop church had this goal that it was going to be a seven-day-a-week place, and we were going to bring people in and begin to have these conversations and host certain events and have some things happen, and stuff sort of took off on us. And for the last five years, that's what we did. And we did it up until last summer when, you know, we had the flood and things changed, and we're kind of in this status now of waiting to see the new life of it, the new spin. What, God, what do you want us to do next? Last fall, I was sitting in the coffee shop, and this guy came down, and he was being sent down. Whitworth University sent him down. Turned out he was with the Academy of Arts and Sciences in Boston, Massachusetts, one of the oldest think tank institutions in our country. It was founded by, you know, Ben Franklin, and uh, John Hancock was one of the original founders, that sort of thing, and they've been around a long time. And the think tank group sits, and they discuss what's going on. For, for two years, they had been doing this study of how come American democracy is not working right anymore? What is it that has gone on? What, why is it broken down so far? And What could be done to maybe fix American democracy and bring it back to the place where we function in a healthier, uh, less divisive way? And uh, so they were going around the country. They'd, sent, they'd scattered teams of individuals out from Boston. They went all around the United States, and they held discussion groups in different places, and one of the discussion groups was being held up at Whitworth. I didn't know about it. I wasn't invited. But somebody at Whitworth told him about us. So they sent him down, and we sat in a little coffee table right over here. We just chit-chatted, and I just kind of told him some things that we had done and some events that had transpired here and some activities we'd been involved in and stuff that had gone on for five years. Because of our coffee shop, we had these things happen, and that happened. This group met, and then we met this guy, and this happened because we met that guy. Oh, then this went and happened. And I would just tell him our stories. And... Uh, and he said, oh, great, thanks. He took notes, said, let's keep in touch. I'm like, great, and he left. And about, uh, I guess it was somewhere around December, I get an email inviting me to come to Boston to hear the results of the two-year study. They're going to release that, the results of the study. And I'm like, oh, that's great. Like, I'm going to pack up and go to Boston, you know, and pay to go listen to a study from a bunch of brainiacs. And I was like, thank you. No, thank you, no thanks. Not going to do it. Uh, and then they sent me some, oh, no, we'll pay your way and put you up in a hotel. I'm like, I'm going to Boston, right? And about two weeks before the trip, which was scheduled for the first week of February, two weeks I get another email saying, oh, no, no, we want you to present. 
We, it's a, what we're going to have is these big panel discussions with these top-level brainiacs and heads of corporation and, and professors or, or presidents of universities, and they're going to be doing some discussion. And in between, we've picked, out of the United States of America, we've picked like 10 or 15 really stellar places that we want to feature. So we want you to come up and do a five-minute talk in between these panel discussions on your work that you're doing in Spokane called a spark talk, a little spark of imagination. And I'm like, okay, I guess I could do that. Now, mind you, I got like a week. And I was like, I'm putting together a spark talk. And I said, how firm are you on the five minutes? Because I can't say anything in five minutes. And they're like, very firm, very firm on the five-minute rule. So I'm like, okay. And then I'm letting you know, I was the only spark talk that stayed to five minutes. But I wrote a little script. And I went back to Boston, and I stood in front of this crowd of and there must have been two or three hundred of them, of, you know, super brainiacs, presidents of universities, big think tank guys, people leading major innovative moves in the American democracy movement. And I did this little spark talk, and I'm going to move over here just for this, if you want to zoom in on me a bit, Virgil, or whatever. I'm going to do it from here so you can kind of watch the screen. Because I put this slideshow together, and the slideshow was happening behind me while I did this talk. All right, Kai, you ready? Good afternoon. My name is Rob Bryson, and I am the pastor of the Gathering House Church. In 2009, I found myself leading a 120-year-old downtown church in Spokane, Washington, a city of over 200,000 people in a county that has half a million. We were surrounded by homeless shelters, mental health institutions, housing for addicts, correctional release facilities, and 44 registered sex offenders lived within eight blocks of our church. The dying church had hired me to revitalize it and have young families come back. But alas, I was not a magic Disney princess. So instead, we decided to sell the building and close down. But the economy had tanked, and we would need to occupy the place until it sold. In the meantime, we decided to just love our neighbor. We invited them in Sunday afternoons to watch football and eat a free meal. During commercial breaks, I gave away hats and coats and gloves and backpacks by using trivia questions or playing games. Up to 200 people came each week for the next five years. I joined the Spokane Homeless Coalition to learn what I could. I made connections that expanded us to two more meals a week. Other nonprofit agencies and the city's health and human services worked with us and used our location to serve street people. Gonzaga nursing students came in to health check the population. I gave their data to Providence Healthcare, who used the study to put an urgent care clinic across the street. Everyone praised our work, but the church was dying. Nobody really wants to go to a church where the pre-service announcement is, Good morning. Before we start, we'd like to ask that you not place your beer in the toilet tanks to keep them cold during church services. There is no panhandling in the lobby unless you're an official church usher. If you like something the pastor says, you don't have to call out for him to kick the demons in the ass. A hearty amen will suffice. Try to refrain from standing at the back and flipping off the pastor during his sermon. He does find it distracting. We'd like to remind you that tipsy is tolerable, but sloshed will get you tossed. And please, silence your cell phones. In 2014, the building sold. We didn't want to build another church auditorium that sat empty all week waiting to fill it for Sunday for only four hours. 
We wanted to build something more community-related that allowed use of the building seven days a week, but also let us do church. We decided to create a job training copy shop that took people coming out of poverty, addiction, or being paroled and gave them a shot at getting a job and building a resume. We'd close the cafe on Sundays to hold church. We relocated to a gentrifying business neighborhood. We took the church pews and converted them to cafe tables, and the old pulpit became the barista bar. The back children's rooms were designed to be business-friendly during the week for our meeting spaces. We had no idea the impact we would have. For the last five years, our space became a hub for community development and social action. The Spokane Homeless Coalition moved their meetings to our space. So did the Garland Business District and the North Hill Neighborhood Council, part of the city government structure, moved their monthly meetings to our church. The mayor booked our space for an educational symposium with top business leaders encouraging them to hire former felons. The city council president held workshops to discuss serious social problems. Several other city council members and state representatives used our space to hold informational meetings with their constituency. When the current newly elected mayor launched her campaign by gathering 100 of the top level business and community leaders, that event was held in our church. A group of felons known as I Did the Time met weekly in our coffee shop for support. They became our friends. When one of them was elected president of the NAACP, they began to hold meetings in our space. The Racial Justice Equity Council moved their monthly meetings to our house, and when they met with a county sheriff to discuss the impact of a new jail on the racial minority population of our county, that meeting was held at our church. Because our space is a great small meeting venue, our church, which looks nothing like a church, became extremely popular. We have hosted regular meetings for the Spokane Fatherhood Initiative, groups rescuing girls from sex trafficking, temporary foster care to help struggling mothers, racial reconciliation forums, and meetings between pastors and city employees to discuss ways to positively impact the city. Time will not allow me to tell of everyone, but in a single year, over 40 different groups, agencies, or government entities have used our church site to further their work. In addition to these groups, we became a host venue for fundraisers, acoustic or jazz concerts, open mic nights, art gallery shows, auctions, hip-hop concerts, 1940 swing dance lessons, and breakdance competitions. I would eventually write a book about our adventures called Lessons from a Church in Zombieland. America loves big and thinks unless it's big, it can't be significant. Even the church world has bought into this. We're only 100 people, but we are significant. How would you like to be the church in your town of over 200,000 people that when the city government needs help, they call you? I leave you with this final thought. Our journey to significance didn't begin with the powerful or the influential. It began by loving the lowest rung of American society. At that point, they burst out in applause. Y'all a little quiet in here. <laughs> the idea that what could we be? How could we impact a city of 200,000? Just a few of us, a handful of us. I think there's only 25 of us left at the time. To build something that might have an impact for the kingdom of God and for the gospel of Jesus to go out and to do racial reconciliation work and to improve the function of society at large in many different ways and for five years because of our coffee shop, that's what we've been doing. And now it's interesting because I'm looking at where do we go from here? 
Where do we go from here? What is Jesus saying? And I, I don't really have that answer yet. This last week, I was in a uh, symposium that Whitworth, again, was putting on. They did it as a Zoom meeting, and they had a couple top-notch speakers. One of them was uh, Soon Chan Ron. One was Randy Woodley. One was Eugene Cho. And they had these sessions in the morning. I was tuned into listening, and at night, more sessions. Really good, thought-provoking stuff. It was interesting, but Randy Woodley, who's a uh, Cherokee uh, native chief, a, a very influential person in the American native scene, he was discussing a biblical passage, and he talked about, you know, when Westerners hear the story of the rich young ruler, they hear it as an individual person giving away their goods to goodwill. You know the story of the rich young ruler. A young man comes to Jesus, and he says, good sir, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. You know, obey the commandments that are there. And, uh, you know, don't steal, don't commit adultery. And he lists five of the ten commandments, the five not having to do with God, but having to do with people right and he leaves out the five that deal with God and then the rich young man says well I've done all that what else do I need to do and Jesus says go and sell all that you have give it to the poor and come and follow me and the man leaves very sad because he's rich Randy was saying when western European thinking people and our individual Americanism hear this, we hear the story as someone who has lots of possessions, who goes and donates it to goodwill, and walks away and goes and follows Jesus and kind of does their own thing. He says, when a native person hears this story, they hear it differently. They hear it as a community story. They hear it as you who have achieved inside the society have the power to lift all of society up if you will give it away. It's not a question of just taking your stuff and dumping it off at Goodwill. It's a question of why not use the resources, the power, the influence that you have, the education you have gained, the material possessions that you have built up, and use those to empower the brackets of society below you who are suffering until all of society is raised up. See, that's what following Jesus would be. The story of the rich young ruler. And so we ask ourselves, I think at this time, because see, that story, it's not a command to go be poor yourself. What good would that do? It's a command to use what you have, the status you have, the power you have, the experience you have, the material possessions you have, the wealth you have, to actually change the world, particularly to raise up the bottom strata. If Jesus is in our lives, and he has much more to do with making us a benefit to others, it's not just about being a morally good person. Your Christianity, your coming to Jesus Christ and Him becoming the Lord and Savior life wasn't supposed to just make you a morally good person. The rich young ruler stood in front of Jesus and said, I've done all the moral good things. I'm a morally good man. Everything you just listed, I've done all that since my youth. I'm a morally good person. Why didn't Jesus just leave it there if that was enough? Because even for Jesus, that's not enough. The question being asked is, and what benefit are you to others? And I think at some point in our American Christianity, the version of the gospel went out that was called a, having a personal Savior. Is Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior, right? Um, which, you think about it, it's a strange phrase. I mean, if I need a Lord and Savior, what do I, I mean, do I need an impersonal one? Or is he just mine and nobody else's? I mean, how, what does that even mean? 
But what it kind of meant, it boiled down to is, it's just about me. My relationship with Jesus is really about me and Jesus, what Jesus does for me and how I respond to him, about me being a morally good person to Jesus. But in the biblical truths, what you have instead is, no, no, Jesus, yes, he saves you. Yes, he can make you a morally good person. Yes, you get the Holy Spirit placed inside you. But what benefit then do you become? What are you for? And Jesus is always calling us to have that higher level of thinking, that higher level. And I got to tell you, it isn't easy to do. It's not easy to do at all. Because to be an influence of change for others does require a surrender and a sacrifice. It's so difficult that after the rich young ruler walks away, Jesus turns and looks at his disciples, and they're, they're standing there you know, with their mouths open like, whoa, what you're asking is huge. And Jesus says, yeah, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? And, of course, <laughs> their response is like, well, you're blowing us away even more. And Peter says, we've, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, in that text in Luke chapter 18, he says, everyone who's left, you know, uh, fathers and mothers and lands and goods and brothers and sisters for me and the gospel will receive a hundred times back not only in this age but the age to come there was a calling to be something different I would say for five years we built something that worked the vision of what we wanted to do it worked because we had the cafe in here, we became an impact to the city. Were there areas we could have done better and improved? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we could have done some things way better. We could have connected the church members better to some of the things we had. But if we look at the legacy of what we accomplished, I'd say, did we do the vision we set out to do? I'm, yes, we did. Was it financially a, a huge success? No, it wasn't a financial huge success. But it was a socially huge success. It made a difference in Spokane. And the question we're all kind of wrestling with now is, if Jesus wants us to be a benefit to others, he wants to take our Christianity and surrender it to be a benefit to others, what is the sacrifice to make for the next phase of our journey together here at the Gathering House? And I don't, I don't really know what that's going to look like. I'm getting together privately with different individuals and we're talking about it and we're laying out some ideas and plans, but I don't really have that thing that's from God that says, oh, God has spoken. This is the direction. I only know this. I really miss what we had. I really miss it. Right? I miss the energy and the passion. I miss the people who came in and out of here. I can't tell you the number of times I'd walk out of my office, grab a cup of coffee, and someone would pop up out of a chair and run over and say, hey, Pastor Rob, I need you to meet this guy. Pastor Rob, I need you to meet this woman. And I would meet the most fascinating, interesting people, and we would talk and we'd share our lives. I'd walk out sometimes, I'd grab a cup of coffee, and I'd see ladies, four ladies gathered around a table praying for each other, one of them actually wearing a scarf knowing she's probably going through cancer. I'd watch gentlemen come in who I didn't know to read the Bible and, and, and talk and pray with each other. I saw this incredible fruit of ministry constantly ongoing. And I miss it. It's a little disorienting to come to work in an empty building nowadays. And I asked Jesus, what is it you want? This fall, we've got a couple of events that are coming, and I know uh, there's a Whitworth group that's the uh, um, Office of Church Engagement has one group that's doing a, um, 
uh, called to the city is the name of the of this group and what they are is about 10 or 20 of us pastors who get in there and we sit we have this discussion and we have some leaders from Whitworth and they'll bring in city government people and we have these talks about how can we improve the quality of life in Spokane and literally we've sat there and asked city government officials what is it you want from the church if you guys could ask all the churches to unite and do something what is it you would want And we have these kinds of discussions what is it we could contribute to make Spokane better Right, we have these conversations, and, and then they stumbled across some grant money from uh, the Lilly, uh, Lilly Endowment, and so they had this grant money. Anybody got a good idea? And one, one couple's idea, these two guys I know, they're building a tiny house project up in Colville for taking homeless people and giving them actually home ownership in a tiny house village that they're building. And there's a couple other great ideas. There's a playgrounds being built in a, uh, impoverished areas out in the valley where there's empty lots and there's some churches that are like, hey, we'll see about buying this lot next door and creating a playground for the neighborhood. There's stuff like that going. And I told them about our, our idea was a long time back. We said we always wanted to develop our parking lot and be able to have concerts out there, be able to do uh, events that are out there, have farmer's market stuff out there. And we had thought about it and it was about $30,000 to repave the parking lot just to repave it. And it's like, yeah, but you don't really want to repave it only to come along later with new design and when you've tried to figure out what to do with the two corners and on the sidewalks up and down here and you try to figure that out later now you got to dig up the paving you just done you know so the better yet is to get master design plans from a landscape architect who could incorporate even the sidewalks and the city property portions and let's develop it and we'll come and then we could put it in in phases so we have a master design plan and I looked around at that and it was going to be like ten thousand dollars to hire a architect and and uh, as I talked with the call to the city guys, the leader of it said, well, really, Rob, if you want a farmer's market, you ought to think about having conduit put in during that first phase when you're putting down uh, some, you know, putting down the pavement. So why don't, why don't you actually apply for a grant for the architectural drawings and an extra five grand for a conduit? And since he was helping decide who got the grants, I thought that was good advice and I should take it. And so I wrote a grant and I did it last fall and I wrote a grant out there and uh, this week, a $15,000 check came in for us to begin that process. And the weird thing is, we were all kind of like, after the roof fiasco we had, redoing the flooring, closing the coffee shop, we've been kind of on hold, like, Lord, what's the next direction for us? Should we do this or not? But we continue to ask ourselves, have we ever let go of the vision that the church should be fulfilling Jesus' mission? No, we never let go of that. We've, we've thought maybe running a daily coffee shop is we can't figure out how to do that and do it right or do it well or we couldn't figure out how to do it with all the resources or the lack of resources that we had. But we never let go of the fact that a church should exist to preach good news to the poor, to heal brokenhearted people, to proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim this is the year God has favor. On your life we never let go of wanting to be that church and now we're asking Jesus how how what's the next phase look like we don't have the answer yet but for those of you who are listening to my voice now those of you in the room and those watching at home this is the hardcore prayer thing we would like you on Lord awaken again the impact we had show us how to do it show us what we need to do that is fresh Show us how to be the church again 
that raises the bar of society, that we could take the rich young ruler attributes we have of the assets, the experiences, the knowledge we have, and we could pass it down somehow to the poor to build society up. Show us, Lord, how to be that. Don't let us just walk away sad. Give us something fresh. This is our prayer. This is our hope. This is our desire. And I hope that it's yours too. I hope that you come to the gathering house because you sense and feel there's something more than just church who's just singing more worship songs with a guitar and reading Bible verses. But there's something else God wants out of this place. And it was his plan and his design. Honestly, if you knew the whole story, we shouldn't be here. We should have closed many times over. He kept us alive long past the point when we were dead as a church. And he has a plan and a desire to continue the work that he began. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ our Lord. I'd like the worship team to come up as we close in song. And as they're coming up, just thinking through, you know, what is it God wants us to, what is it God wants us to be as an individual and as collective? You know, what is it God wants us to, what are we to do together? And somewhere out in our midst, the move of God, the Holy Spirit of God will speak to all of our hearts and minds and he'll confirm in each of us when that moment comes, we say, this is the thing to do. And I do know this, whatever it is, it's going to take a sacrifice. It's going to take some sort of huge surrender and giving on our part that says, we're going to build a new thing now. And it's going to take a sacrifice. I don't know what it's going to look like, and I don't know what the sacrifice will be at this point, but Jesus does. And so we're going to ask him, Lord, show us who we are, and show us who you want, to, want us to be collectively. Hi, I'm Margo. Whether you're here with us in person or whether you are with us online, we just thank you for joining us. Thank you for being with us. You could have made lots of decisions, but maybe you chose to be here. I thank you for that. So Rob talked about sacrifice, and I have been here at the Gathering House or First Covenant Church before, as of I came one year after Rob, and it has been a wild and bumpy ride. Um, and he talks about sacrifice, and I have found along that way that it is sacrifice is something that costs you, something that costs you personally. It means giving up my rights to have my own way. It give, means giving up my time. It means giving up my resources. It means giving up a lot of things. It means laying down my life and saying, Jesus, what do you want from me? And how am I to be used in this place? And that costs. And it means you've given up things that you could have done other things with. And some of you have made those kind of choices here too. And, and heaven thanks you. Heaven thanks you. Because there is a difference being made on the earth because of what the gathering house is doing. And so I want to close this in prayer because each of you is going to be asked by the Holy Spirit, tugging on your heart in one way or another to do some things in the coming, coming days, in the coming months, in the coming years that will cost you. 
And as we lay down our lives, we lay them down so that others can live too. So, Lord, I just thank you for the people who call the Gathering House their home, for the people who will call the Gathering House their home. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people who would be willing to lay down our lives for the sake of others, that we would follow you in sacrificial love. Lord, I ask that you fill us up to overflowing, that Lord, I ask, Lord, that you would be the missing part of the equation because just us is not enough. But Lord, us plus you is more than enough. And so I thank you for that, Lord, that you make us able to be more than enough for whatever things happen to be in the path ahead of us. Lord, I pray that you would give our leadership and our pastor great wisdom to know and to, to choose a direction and, and take some steps of faith. Maybe there are leaps of faith. I don't know. But Lord, I thank you that you have a vision and a plan for this place. And I ask, Lord, that you would just breathe new life into it now. Breathe new life into us. Lord, I pray that you would make this place a refuge and a hope for our surrounding neighbors in our city. And that your love would flow through each and every person who comes onto this place and into this building or even crosses paths with those who have uh, chosen to become uh, part of this. So Lord, we just thank you and we praise you. We ask that you go with us into this week. Help us to make wise choices and decisions on how to use our lives for your good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.